I mentioned in our catechism that when we read about idolatry in the Bible, we read about ourselves. I actually think that's a standard principle of understanding the scriptures, is not to distance yourself from the characters you find in its pages, but recognize that they're just humans following their human nature. Okay? And so, for example, Paul said earlier in his communication to the Corinthians that no temptation has come upon you except that which is common to man. If you flip that, you will recognize that anything that tempts the average person, you should recognize your susceptibility to it. Okay? That's what I'm saying this morning. The reason I bring that up is because for the next few weeks, we're going to talk about false teachers. And I think most of us, and this is myself including as I reflect on this, think that that's not a vulnerability that we have. That's something that may happen, something that happens somewhere, uh, but it's not to be concerning to us. But it was very concerning to the authors of Scripture. Going all the way back to Deuteronomy, Moses warns that those would come who falsely represent God. As you read through the rest of Israel's history in the Old Testament, you see them on the scene and active. And it's unfortunately very rare that the entire nation goes, wait a minute, we don't believe you, right? Uh, in fact, if you read uh, where we are in Deuteronomy in our evening study tonight in chapters 30 through 34, Moses can say with confidence, you're going to walk away. You're going to fail. You're going to listen. Paul says in another place, in the last days, many will forsake solid doctrine and seek instead for their ears to be tickled. In fact, Jesus himself warned about those who would come and falsely represent him, saying, watch out for those who will come who are wolves in sheep's clothing. Peter, Peter makes this warning in 2 uh, Peter when he says, uh, when he says, uh, watch out effectively for teachers that will come from within and without. Jude calls them wandering stars for whom it is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. John says, uh, be aware that the spirit of Antichrist is in the world and that will many will come to try and turn you away from Jesus. The warning is consistent and persistent across the pages of Scripture. And so it's helpful that as we look at this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, we get some tools to discern. Or, like the title of our series, we get an opportunity to understand how to go about testing teachers. So let's read together, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 11. I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve, by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus, than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. Let's pray. Our 
God, your word is filled with warnings, and so I ask that you would help us to heed them. And I pray, Lord, that as we, uh, we are given this opportunity to compare what is true and what is false, uh, that we would celebrate and rejoice and stand more firmly in the truth. I pray, Lord, that you would teach us uh, this morning by your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. We should review the circumstances of what's going on here again. Paul is writing this letter to the church in Corinth um, for a multitude of reasons, but the biggest one is because his last visit in Corinth was interrupted by these new folks, these interlopers, these people who had come from the outside uh, and were not impressed by Paul and thought that they should effectively be the authorities uh, in the church. And so he's writing in these chapters here a defense of himself, uh, and he does not like to do this. That's why he begins in verse 1 and says, I wish you'd bear with me in a little foolishness. These men who have come in have been boasting about their credentials, uh, demonstrating their impressiveness, comparing themselves with one another, like it says in chapter 10, uh, and criticizing Paul effectively because he won't play the game. And so here in chapter 11, uh, all the way into chapter 12, he finally plays the game. Now, as he does so, he changes the rules. And so when he says boasting here, he means something significantly different than what they meant. However... As he does so, we need to recognize both this resistance and then a second thing that doesn't come off unless you're paying attention, which is irony. Okay? Paul is actually a relatively ironic speaker. He likes to engage and use it a lot. And what he does throughout this passage is he takes the words of his opponents and the opinions of the Corinthian church and he uses them, but he twists them twists them as he uses them. He uses them to shine light on what's actually going on, okay? And so notice what he asks them to do here in chapter 11, verse 1. I wish that you would put up with me. I wish that you would bear with me. And then he goes on and he says, do bear with me, or in some, uh, one of the ways that you could parse the grammar here is, and indeed you do put up with me. Indeed you do tolerate me. Right? They haven't severed off the relationship at all. Well, we've got to make at least some room for Paul. We have to, you know. Uh, but notice how he brings this back in later. And so he says, if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus or another spirit, or if you accept a different gospel, you put up with it readily enough. He says, you're more than happy to accept in these outsiders, these false messages, these things. You're open-armed, and with me... The Father who loves you and led you to Jesus, who planted this church, who served you faithfully, you'll tolerate me. Okay. He does it again when he refers to his opponents as the super apostles. Okay. He's recognizing, probably they didn't refer to themselves or introduce themselves as the super apostles, but he's recognizing that the way they view themselves They've taken the apostolic office and they've created a new higher echelon at the top of it and said, we're even better than that. And so he goes, okay, fine, I'll call you by that name. But as he does so, he shows how silly it is that they would identify as such. In fact, as we'll see, one of the concerns that Paul has about these men is that they're not apostles at all. Apostle means to be sent. And these are just the ones who came on their own initiation. Okay? Whereas Paul is given a commission 
And the evidence of that commission is the existence of the church of Corinth itself, which he was called and sent out to go to Corinth, to preach, to lead to Jesus, and that their existence is effectively his letter of recommendation, his evidence of his apostolic call, um, as he says earlier in the letter. Now, the second thing we need to deal with is Paul's heart here, where he says in verse 2, I feel a divine jealousy for you. Now, anytime we encounter the uh, word jealousy in the Bible, we have to recognize a difference uh, between the concept of jealousy in the ancient world and the way that we engage with it now. Okay. Now, if you read and look at every uh, entry where the word jealousy in Greek or Hebrew is found in the Bible, you will find much in common with our modern understanding of it, that jealousy is a terrible thing, a green-eyed monster, an envious thing that destroys relationship and leads to all sorts of things. But you will also find another jealousy, one that doesn't seem to exist in modern understanding at all. In fact, this is one of the first things God reveals about himself in the Ten Commandments when he says, you will uh, you know, have no other gods before me, for I, the Lord, am a jealous God. Okay? The first thing he says about himself in the Ten Commandments is that he's jealous. Okay? What we need to recognize is that there is a good jealousy, which is two things. One, it is right in its assessment of relationship. God is a jealous God because he is the only God. Okay? Oftentimes the way jealousy plays out in our lives is it demands exclusivity where exclusivity is inappropriate. But not for God. The only other place where we find good jealousy in the Bible is in the marriage relationship. A husband's jealousy for his wife or a wife's jealousy for her husband. Okay? It has that same exclusivity. It's a relationship that is unique and worth protecting, uh, and that difference should be maintained. Okay? Uh, but the second thing we should recognize here is almost conveyed by the grammar itself. He doesn't say, I feel a divine jealousy of you. He doesn't say, I feel a divine jealousy of these other teachers. Right? This is not him being territorial and bummed out because he's not the favorite anymore. That's not the idea here. He's jealous on their behalf. This is a loving jealousy, not a selfish jealousy. Like, do you see how grammatically, how hard it is for us to even hear that language? It's just not how we use the word. But when God is jealous for the people of Israel, it's not only because he is the total God, it's because everything else that they would engage with as God, like we talked about in the catechism this morning, will destroy them. And here, Paul has a similar concern, but notice here, it's not a jealousy on their behalf that relies on their relationship with Paul. He says this, he says, I feel a godly jealousy, verse 2, for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. It's not his relationship that he feels is threatened by what's going on, even though it is. What he's worried about is their relationship with Jesus. And notice how he sees his role as an apostle, as a leader in the church, as a pastor. He uses this concept of betrothal. And the, the idea of engagement will kind of stand in the gap. That's what a betrothal is. But it's worth remembering that Paul is Jewish. So a betrothal was so significant in the days of the first century that you needed a divorce to break off the wedding. Okay? 
that's different than our engagement, right? We tend to think of engagement that you have up till the I do to back out. It's a commitment to put the date on the calendar. It's not the commitment of marriage until the vows, okay? But in the Jewish world, when a betrothal was entered into, it was marriage. It just hadn't yet been consummated, okay? And so the way he envisions his ministry is that he is setting up this relationship. He's a matchmaker between the church in Corinth and Jesus who is to come. The wedding is still to come. The marriage already exists in betrothal. He says, that's my role, to connect people with Jesus, to set them up, and then in that interim period, he says, to present them as pure virgins. Now, he expands on that in the next verse, and I think it's worth mentioning when he says... Um, at the very end, that uh, verse 3, that he's concerned they will be led away from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. You see the relationship between those two ideas? Present you as a pure virgin to your husband, pure and severe, uh, sincere devotion to Christ, okay? Here's, here's a way that I think is helpful to think about this. In Genesis chapter 24, Abraham sends one of his household servants to go back to the land of his ancestors to find a wife for his son, Isaac. Okay? And it's, it's an odd situation. Isaac doesn't go on the trip, and so this servant shows up. He explains and pitches the process, and he says, my master's son is looking for a wife. Are you interested? Okay. But imagine, imagine that on the way, as they're traveling back to the promised land, uh, you know, they stop off at a Denny's. How is the servant going to feel about this relationship that he's in? If somebody invites Rebecca out for a date, there's an inherent boundary there. That's Paul's concern. That until Christ comes, their devotion would be singular. Okay? That they wouldn't be called away to another spouse. That they wouldn't break off the engagement because they fallen in love, these types of things. That's the imagery. But the concept, the concept that underlay, under, uh, underlies this has to do with false teachers, false doctrine, and deception. Okay? And that's why he draws out the second image. And this one he doesn't draw from the world, uh, but from the scriptures. And so he says in verse 3, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Okay? So how is this going to play out? He's worried it's going to play out in deception, in cunning. He goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden and he says in the same way that here you have Adam and Eve committed to the God who made them and then Satan shows up and starts asking questions. In the same way, he has a concern for them. Now, once again, I want to stress that this concern is not just because the church in Corinth is kind of a mess. They are. If you read 1 Corinthians, if you read 2 Corinthians, everything they're doing seems to be wrong. Some of it's even head-scratching to us today. How could they make such a mistake? But that's not novel in the New Testament. If you look at the church of Galatia, they are prone to be wandered to the degree where Paul goes, how can you be so foolish and then he says, who has bewitched you? It's like you're under a spell the way you're behaving. Even, uh, even towards other churches in the New Testament, even when Peter writes 
to all of these churches across Galatia and Cappadocia and Phoenicia and all of these places, he, he has the same concern and the same danger and the same warning. Okay. When we read Genesis chapter 2 and we listen to the conversation between Eve and the serpent, we go, how stupid. Why, why is this so compelling? Eve is us. This is who we are. Like the hymn proclaims, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And if you need a bigger test than just one conversation with Eve, look at the entire history of the nation of Israel. How much did they have? How much did they know? How patient and how present was God? How many reminders and warnings and prophets calling them to call back, come back? In fact, the whole premise of what's wrong with the old covenant, the promises God makes to Israel, is that Israel cannot keep it. And so God makes a new covenant, not with a new people who are capable of keeping it, but a renewed people, a people who he will change and transition. God is the heavy lifter in the gospel. Even in Jude's terrifying warning about false teachers and their presence in the church, at the end he says, don't forget the one who is capable of holding on to you. We should have a healthy fear of these things. What we shouldn't have is an unhealthy sense of self-ability. It says, well, I'm too smart for that. I'm too strong for that. I'm too devoted for that. I'm too committed. Have you heard of Peter? Right? I will never leave your side. I don't even know the man. That's us. So it's helpful then, it's helpful to pursue this and test the teachers. So what do we see this morning? The first thing I want to point out to you is that the things that do not validate a teacher. They don't invalidate a teacher either, but their presence should not be mistaken for authenticity and authority. And we see a couple of them here. Okay. Uh, the first one is cunning, cleverness, wittiness. Right? That's the first thing it tells us about the devil in the Bible. That the serpent was more cunning than all of God's creation. And the problem is, oftentimes when we are exposed to a new teacher, we are easily impressed because they're witty, because they're cunning. For me, cunning almost always involves the novel. It involves the new. Right? We're drawn to people who have something new to say, who see things in a new light, and it's worth remembering that the way that the New Testament talks about doctrine, talks about teaching, is always in passing it on faithfully. In other words, as Christians, we should be devoted to what is old and not what is new. Okay? But we are. We're impressed, aren't we? When our minds are blown and we say, I've never heard anything like that before. I've never thought in that way before. Now, like I'm saying, that does not invalidate a teacher. Okay? Because there's a lot of things why things can be clever. Maybe you're just not as clever. Right? You've never thought about that before. You can be faithful and smart. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. But we have to watch out for this tendency, like the Athenians, to always want to hear something new. Okay. I have to say this 
so that I say it to myself. I think it's really important this morning that we focus on the ideas and not illustrations of it. I'm not going to call out names. I'm not going to point to particular things. I'm going to do my best not to engage with culture. And the sole reason is because culture changes. The names change. The roster rolls over. Last year's heretics have children, okay? So I'm not going to engage on that level. I have to tell myself that because I so badly want to. But, but cunning doesn't validate a teacher. Wittiness. Another thing that doesn't is vocabulary. What does Paul say here? He says they bring another Jesus. They bring another spirit. They bring another gospel. That's Christian terminology. Almost uniquely Christian terminology. And it doesn't matter if it's these words or redemption or salvation or heaven. Definitions are what matter. And consistently, false teachers utilize the same terminology and change the meaning. And so we shouldn't go, well, if it looks like a duck and it sounds like a duck, not necessarily. We can't say if it looks like a sheep and sounds like a sheep, maybe it's a wolf. We have to ask a different question. And then the third one, and I think this one's also important, especially in our day and age. What do we want to validate somebody in a particular role, whether they're a doctor uh, or, uh, or driving a semi-truck? We want credentials. We want certification. We want some sort of evidence. We want a degree on the wall, right? We're all made more comfortable when we walk into a doctor's office, a person who we've never met, and we see somebody vouching for them on the back wall, nice and framed so we can see it, right? But notice what Paul says about himself in verse 6, even if I'm unskilled in speaking. That was one of the primary complaints that these interlopers made about Paul. He's not even a good talker. He's unimpressive. He doesn't, he's not engaging with the modern concepts and schools of rhetoric. He could be a much better speaker, and the fact that he isn't evidences that we should just lay him aside. What's the other half of that? Listen, you know we're the real deal because we're so skilled, because we're professionals. We're so drawn to that in our culture, but we have to watch out for it in this category. Okay. Degrees, ability, loquacious vocabulary, these things do not validate teaching. Okay. The same tools that we use for truth can be used for falsehood. Look at Twitter. Right? The tools don't validate the ministry any more than a scalpel can't be used by a serial killer. So that's, that's what doesn't. Now, there is one element here in here that that does, I think, validate ministry. It's not necessarily easy to discern, but it's a clear earmark. And we see it in the Apostle Paul. What is his heart and his desire? Read it again with me in verse 2. I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. That's an earmark of true Christian truth, is that the ministers point to Jesus. That their heart is that they, you would know and be identified with Jesus. I have a simple rule I use. It is not a perfect rule. 
but I do not read books by Christian speakers whose face is on the cover. Because generally I know what, to, what I'm going to find inside, okay? And I don't think I would have felt that way if the printing press had been in, invented hundreds of years earlier and we were printing books at a different time, okay? We have pictures of Martin Luther because there's illustrations in the front cover, that's fine. But in our day and age, what we sell is self. And when Christian authors are comfortable selling self, I get uncomfortable. Paul can point to himself and he says, my heart, my only goal, my ambition, the thing that I put everything on the table, every reason for sacrifice is towards one goal, to connect people with Jesus. He doesn't care about affiliation with him. One of the other teachers who was very skilled and incredibly professional and greatly respected by the church in Corinth was a man named Apollos. The way Paul talks about Apollos and the way he talks about these teachers is worlds, worlds apart. He says, Apollos and I are on the same team. I just rejoice that you're being built up. I sowed, he watered, God gives the increase, it's fine. In fact, he encourages them a few chapters from here and says, Apollos is coming, make room for him. There is definitely a concerning jealousy of false teachers. And that's even what we see in these men. They didn't start the church, but they want to claim it in the name of them. They want to stake a flag in this church and say, look how big my influence is. I've added another congregation to my roster. That's not Paul's heart at all. He just wants to make sure that they get across the finish line, that they really, truly, deeply, fully know Jesus, that he would, as he says in another place, be able to present them blameless in the coming of Christ. That's his heart. Now, there are some things that don't validate a teacher, and one thing that definitely does, but the focus we find here has to do with the content. Okay? When we say testing teachers, what we mean is testing their message. And so that's his concern that he presents here again in verse 4. If someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you received a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. That's where it comes down to. It comes down to message. It comes down to what they say. Okay. In the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 17, Paul passes through a small city called Thessalonica. He's run out of Dodge, just like happens in other places, and so he ends up in an even smaller place called Berea. And he goes, as was his custom, to the synagogue, and before the Jews, he makes a case that Jesus is the Messiah as promised by the prophets in the Old Testament. And then it holds up the Bereans and makes them an example. And you have to ask yourself what's going on in this verse, why Luke says this. Because what he says is those in Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Why does he give a little quality stamp there? Why does he hand out a little blue ribbon? He's trying to make them an example. He says, we should be like the Bereans. And what does he say? He says they were no, more noble than the Thessalonians because they searched the scriptures to see if these things were so. Now remember, Luke is on Paul's team. Luke believes that Paul is bringing the true gospel, but he is concerned that the way people understand that gospel is in the context of what the Bible actually says. That's why... 
fascination of all fascination, he presents them as an example to the church and to his Christian audience, a guy named Theophilus. He says, they should be your example, even, they're not, even though they're not believers yet. They're not Christians, and he says, be like them. Because they searched the scriptures to see if these things were so. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, that still applies to you. In fact, it's worth reading. Um, here in Acts, like I said, I, I think it's 17. Remember again that these folks who become Christians here, just that, become Christians. That when they hear Paul preach, they're not yet Christians. But notice what it says here. Verse 11, now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed. Okay, two things. One, when it says they searched the scriptures daily to see if these things are so, in Greek, that's a fourth class conditional statement. Okay, in English, when we say if, sometimes we mean if, sometimes we don't. So your roommate says, hey, I'm going to the store, and you go, oh, if you're going to the store, could you pick me up? You know they're going, right? That type of if is called a first-class conditional, and in Greek, you parse it differently. It's written differently, okay? When, when if means sense, it's a first-class conditional. This is the only example in the entire New Testament of a fourth-class conditional. A fourth-class conditional is at the other end. You don't believe. They search the scriptures to see if at possibly at all against our better judgment this could really be the truth these Bereans are skeptics they're doubters they don't believe tall Paul they'll listen to him eagerly but they're like I don't know about that if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian that's an okay posture we don't expect you to come here and swallow everything I say or anything everybody says in this church and just believe because it's so self-evident there is evidence but it's not on the surface. It has to be searched for. And what I love about this passage is it says, not only were they noble in searching, but many of them therefore believed. Why? Because they looked. Because they looked. As Christians, we should not be afraid of questions because we believe there are answers. And so we should be encouraged ourselves. We, could en we should encourage those of us who are struggling with doubt. And we should encourage those who are investigating Christianity to really look. But one of the ways we see that you need to look is in the scriptures themselves. And I just want to add one more thing because uh, when we're talking about false teaching uh, the Bible is a big book. And one of the things that makes any teaching compelling is they draw out something in a single passage, right? It takes time to know how to assess that in the context of the rest of scriptures. And so even, even if you say, yeah, well, I'm checking out Christianity right now and I've given it a solid go and I still don't believe it, it takes time. It takes time in these things. But nonetheless, getting back, getting back to what's being said, he says the danger here is another Jesus. Now, let's just point out the self-evident. It's not that they're saying, no, no, not Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus of Cincinnati, Right? When they're talking about another Jesus, they're not talking about a different man with a different postal code. It's just not the real Jesus. It's not the true Jesus. 
Once again, they use the same terms and even the same name, but they mean a different thing. Okay. Now, how do we know if it's the real Jesus? Well, the only Jesus we have access to is the one presented in scriptures. Not, not that there aren't other accounts that mention Jesus that are semi-contemporary to the New Testament. We have the writings of uh, um, Tacitus uh, and the writings of Josephus and a few other people who actually recognize and point to Christ and Christianity. Secular sources, that's true. But they won't really tell you who Jesus is. It's just, it's just a reference. Okay. But in the New Testament we have a description of who Jesus is, of what he did, of, of how these things are. And the truth is, when Jesus, spirit, gospel, they're all so interwoven um, that we'll deal more with that when we get to gospel. But uh, one of the ways that you can tell the Jesus a person presents is in the life that they live. Okay? Because we're talking about worship here. We're talking about elevator. We're talking about founder of religion. And the way that it was probably playing out in Corinth is not necessarily that they were trying to modify who Jesus was doctrinally, but the way that they looked at Jesus and the way they lived it was this victorious, glorious, sitting on the throne Jesus, signs and wonders and miracles and happiness and goodness in life with no, no pain, no suffering, riches and wealth. That seems to be what's going on here. Okay. And so what is... What does Paul say that he determined to do when he first came to Corinth? And what does he maintain here? When I came, I preached solely and only Jesus Christ and him crucified. When he goes on to boast in the next chapter, he says, I'll boast, but I'm going to boast in my weakness because my life has been a living hell. Okay. And he says, and that makes sense because Jesus was crucified. In other words, when we look at Jesus, we see two major things that you should see in people who say they proclaim him. One is humility. Remember, this is Jesus, the very God of very God, like the old creed says. But when we look at him in life, we find him humble. We find him meek. We find him mild. We find him not jockeying for position, but surrendering the position he has in heaven. And that like, brings us to sacrifice. When Paul talks about his own ministry, he sometimes does use sacrificial terms. This is what he says in Philippians. He says, I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the altar of your worship. I'm expending everything until the cup is dry, and I'm happy to do so. His life was filled with danger because of his love for those who had yet to hear the gospel. He experienced beatings and punishment and shipwreck because sacrifice to him was just what it meant like to follow Jesus. Jesus said, if anyone seeks to follow me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So what can we infer to that about people who proclaim to represent Jesus? If you don't see any sort of self-denial, if you don't see any presence of cross, there's reason for concern. They're presenting another Jesus, the Jesus that the disciples really wanted, the conqueror who has a throne to spare and will escalate us to the top of society. That's part of the story. It's not the whole story. And the way that you get to that part of the story is always the same. Yes, there's resurrection and victory, but it's through death and defeat. Yes, there's strength, but it's strength through weakness. 
those are the things that Paul is going to go on to say. And so it makes us think here that when he's talking about another Jesus, that's his primary concern. But not only did Paul come and proclaim a Jesus and then someone came and proclaimed a different Jesus, but also they received a different spirit from the one you received. This is referring here to the Holy Spirit, okay? And so when we talk about who Jesus is, Jesus is Lord, requiring our obedience. Jesus is Savior, meaning he's our only hope in life or death, okay? Uh, When we look here at Spirit, we recognize the fact that Jesus brought about the promise of God to make us temples, to send his Spirit to live and to dwell in us. I mentioned earlier the new covenant. God says he'll give us a new heart of flesh to replace our heart of stone, that he will uh, come in and dwell in us. The life we live as Christians is made possible by the presence of the Holy Spirit. Okay? And so the gospel is not, we'll talk about this in just a second, the gospel is not merely a message of forgiveness. It's not merely, hey, look, I know you can't live up to it, everything's going to be fine. It's also this gift of the Spirit enabling us to hear God's voice, enabling us to do God's will, enabling us and empowering us for the ministry that he's called us to. But this is why Paul has just said, if anyone boasts, this is in the end of chapter 10, let him boast in the Lord. Because it's the Spirit at work in Paul. Okay? Now the danger here is that somebody comes and offers another spirit than the one you've received. And one of the ways that sometimes plays out is by ni- denying that you've had the Spirit at all. Coming and saying, oh, well, you think, but you haven't actually, you ain't seen nothing yet. You haven't experienced, right? There are two classes of Christians. There are the ones who have and the ones who have not. But the spirit that Paul is talking about, if you have received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have received the spirit. But also, the spirit to these folks was the spirit who was constantly doing showy things. If you read 1 Corinthians uh, chapters 12 through 14, the church in Corinth was already drawn to this. For them, the gifts of the Spirit were to be used as badges, that they were in the inner circle of spirituality. And it seems, as you read about this, that these super apostles were the same way. It was light and fire and sound. And it's not that the Spirit doesn't do those things. Read the book of Acts. But there's also the fruit of the Spirit. It produces love and joy and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. Oftentimes the way the Spirit works is not in a booming voice, but a still small one. But how are you going to know if the Spirit they're presenting is the Spirit of Christ? The New Testament talks a lot about who the Spirit is and what he does. And then he says... There's also the danger of another gospel. And the word there for gospel means good news. It is the baseline answer that Christianity gives to the problems of humanity. Okay? Every religion gives an answer to both what is wrong with humanity and how to fix it. When we use the word gospel, we're talking about how to fix it. And Paul says, there's more than one. There's more than one gospel. In fact, he warns the Galatians, and he says, if anyone comes to you and preaches to you another gospel than the one we preached to you, let him be accursed or anathema or literal translation would be damned to hell. He makes it incredibly serious. And what's going on in Galatia? 
It's not that they're denying that God offers forgiveness in Jesus Christ. It's not that they're denying that Jesus really is the God who came to die. It's that they're adding to that gospel. And they're saying, yes, follow Jesus, believe in Jesus, receive Jesus, and be circumcised and keep the Old Testament law. And Paul says, it's all or nothing. That is another gospel. As soon as you add to the gospel, you change it. So how do we recognize the gospel? Okay, a couple of things. Either Jesus saves us in totality, or he doesn't save us at all. Either Jesus is Savior, or there's some sort of addition, something we bring to the table. The gospel message, according to the New Testament, is we bring need, and he brings provision. We bring sin, and he brings forgiveness. We bring death, and he produces life. It's not we bring a promise to do better. It's not we bring affiliation with this particular church. It's not we bring keeping these rituals or going through these things for the rest of our life. At the end of the day, the gospel message is Jesus Christ saves sinners of whom I am chief. That's the whole gospel. That's why he talks about the simplicity of devotion to Christ. The grammar back there in verse uh, 3 is, is a little bit ambiguous. And so if you have an older translation, it actually says the simplicity of Christ. Forsaking the simplicity of Christ. We are so good at building complex things. And we can do things with our beliefs. We can do things with our religion. We can do things with Christianity. And so it's this and this and this and this and this. And Paul says, no, keep it simple. And the word he uses for simplicity there means without folds. Without wrinkle. It's just flat. It's just obvious. It doesn't mean there's not depth. Okay. You can have a, uh, a sheet that's so large it covers the state of Montana and it can be without wrinkles. But it's simple. It's consistent. From one end to the other, it's consistent. The idea here of the gospel is that the good news as it's proclaimed by Paul in 1 Corinthians is this. For I delivered to you what was passed on to me, that Christ died and was buried according to the scriptures and that he rose again according to the scriptures. That's the gospel. The good news is what God has done in Jesus Christ. In fact, the definition of gospel requires that. Okay. God doesn't come saying, here's how you can set things right. That might be good advice, but it's not good news. Especially when you understand what the Bible says about what's wrong. What the Bible says about what's wrong, the problem that the gospel answers is not, if you knew better, you'd do better. It's not, if you had a better example, then you could follow it. It's not, if you just try a little harder, or if you just maintain focus, constant vigilance, all of that might be good advice. But not if you understand the problem the Bible presents. That all we, like sheep, have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way. That there's none righteous, no, not one. That there's no one who does good. That the evil of wickedness is in every heart. We don't need good advice because we can't keep it. What God has done is more significant. He's done what we could not do in Jesus by sending him to live the life we cannot live 
and to die the death that we deserve and to freely and fully offer us his entire reward to his obedience by trusting in him. Now you can test that gospel. You can take it to the bank. You can read the New Testament. There's detail. There's nuance. There is depth. But that's the simplicity of it. God has sent his son to die. Paul's concern here is that we would surrender the Jesus who loves us, who became man, the Jesus who died and saved us, the Jesus who is King of kings and Lord of lords for a different Jesus. Paul's concern is that we would surrender the Holy Spirit that we've been given, the one who cries out in our hearts, Abba, Father, the one who leads us because we are truly the children of God, the one who works in us that we're we're to work out to our own salvation, the one who uh, has uh, given us gifts to serve one another and the world, the one who works in us the fruit of Jesus' character for another one that might be showy or impressive or in part, uh, you know, that we would surrender a gospel for what is not a gospel. I want to urge us this morning These warnings are for us. There has never been a time in church history where there wasn't heresy, where there wasn't false teaching, and where there wasn't followers of those things. But I want to finish with the words of Jude. Because if we're going to be kept from these things, The emphasis is in the grammar. We are going to be kept. And Jude says the same thing here, right before the book of Revelation. Let's pick up in verse 17. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It's these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. But you, beloved, building yourself up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And so what does he say here? He says, those things exist but you keep yourself in the faith. You keep yourself in the Holy Spirit. You keep yourself in the love of God. Now notice verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Let's pray. Lord, when we meditate on the words of Jude, we see a paradox. He calls us to keep ourselves deep in the faith, to study these things, to know them, to absorb the truth until it runs through our veins and changes the way we think and spills out of our mouth. He calls us to pray in the Holy Spirit, which is this constant attitude of dependence 
like Jesus taught us to pray, Lord, lead us not into temptation. It's the humility that says we, we aren't up to the task. We aren't ready to be tested. Protect us. And to keep ourselves in the love of God, if we are fully acquainted with your love, we won't be deceived by the false offerings of a paramour that has nothing but destruction in mind. But we can do that with confidence and not with fear. We can pursue these things, Lord, because you are able to keep us from stumbling and to present ourselves blameless in glory. Thank you, Lord, that when it comes down to it, you haven't given us two things to do. To learn about you, to know and to trust you, and to watch out and learn about false teachings. You just call us to know the real thing so that the counterfeits won't stand up. Ultimately, Lord, this isn't just about what's true and what's false. Truth does things. And this is the true Jesus. This is the true spirit who lives and works in us. This is the true gospel. And it is better. And it is more beautiful than any false offering man can make. Help us to see you this morning. We ask this in your name.